Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 294 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, one of the key challenges I think we have, one of the key problems we have is how do you get great people, keep them, motivate them, and then how do you scale a culture that is irresistible? Well, we're going to go there today on the podcast. My guest is Deanne Turner. She has a brand new book called Bet on Talent, and she recently retired uh, after 33 years at Chick-fil-A, uh, helping uh, it become part of the success story to becoming a $12 billion company. She was their first female officer, and uh, she has served in many capacities, including vice president talent and vice president of sustainability. She's also done a lot of their recruiting and cultural development in terms of employee culture over the years. I think you're going to find this a fascinating conversation. So I'm so thrilled to have Deanne on the podcast. She's also a listener, which is always a lot of fun, right? It's always fun when you're like, oh yeah, okay, this is this is great. So guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I want to thank all of you who are rating and reviewing the show, who are sharing it with others on social. And I know a lot of you discuss it with your team as well. To that end, we've got transcripts. If you are a reader, I am as much a reader as I am a listener. Uh, you'll find the transcripts really helpful. They're also searchable. You can get them for free at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 294. And today we start a brand new feature called Ask Carrie at the very end of the podcast. And I'm going to answer a question we get a lot. This time, a question from Lauren, a leader who says, how do I motivate my staff when I can't afford to pay them as much as I'd like? So we're going to talk about that uh, at the end of the show. Uh, so listen all the way to the end for that. Um, also, a uh, lot of you are getting in on what's happening with Remodel Health because we're heading into a brand new budget and fiscal year. Uh, what if you could save significant dollars on healthcare? Already, listeners of this podcast have saved over $625,000 in healthcare expenditures in terms of the health insurance they offer their staff. And here's the thing. It's not cutting benefits. Actually, in many cases, it's the same or greater benefits to the staff and massive savings to the church or faith-based organization. So far, Remodel Health has plowed back $7.2 million into the bottom line of organizations. And if you don't want to miss out on that, head on over to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry today to learn more and download their health insurance buyer's guide. They use technology to get individually tailored plans for your company or organization. And uh, that's at remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Make sure you get in on there before you set the costs for 2020. Also last year, a number of you jumped in on something that at that time was brand new. It's called the Red Letter Challenge. And that's a 40-day turnkey church campaign that centers around making more effective disciples of Jesus. It's completely done for you. So Zach Zender, who's a pastor himself, went back, looked at all that Jesus told his disciples to do and found five main principles directly from Christ. So the challenge is centered around those five targets. What I love about it is even people who would say, I'm not sure about Christianity, uh, are still really interested in the teachings of Jesus. So in the first 18 months that Red Letter Challenge has been available, over 60,000 people have completed it, and 100% of the pastors that have completed the Red Letter Challenge recommend it. So here's what they're seeing. An average of 40% growth in small groups, even in very large churches. It's also, in many cases, 
seeing an increase in worship attendance and giving, and even in the amount of volunteers in a church. So the other thing that's kind of fun about the Red Letter Challenge is it is done for you. Graphics package for the series, all the small groups material. There's now a kids edition if you want to take your whole church through it and um, your sermon notes if you want to use them or not. So right now you can go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry and you will see some church packages ready for you to go. The packages start with as little as 10 copies. So small churches or small groups can get in and up to a thousand or more. Going to that link will get you, depending on the size, between 10 and 40% off. And um, yeah, they'll take really, really good care of you. So um, make sure you head on over to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and make sure you check that out as you jump into 2020. Well, without further ado, I am so thrilled to bring you my conversation with Deanne Turner. She's got a brand new book called Bet on Talent. And uh, remember to listen through to the end when I talk about how to motivate people when you can't pay them what you want for a brand new feature we're calling Ask Carrie. Deanne, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I've loved your podcast and I'm honored that, to be your guest today. Well, that's great. And so uh, you have been with Chick-fil-A for a while now. Isn't that right? And it well, is a restaurant with, and a cult, true? Yes. Uh, well, I was with Chick-fil-A for 33 years until I retired last year to start my own business. Um, but uh, yes, 33 years. And it was, I wouldn't call it a cult, but I would call it a family. Ah, uh, that's great. Yeah. And I say that with great affection. So oh, how I, big, just for perspective, how big was Chick-fil-A when you joined it 33 years ago or 34 was, years oh, ago? Yeah, it was only about 150 restaurants with 175 million in sales. And then now Chick-fil-A is approaching 12 billion with over 2,500 restaurants. 12 billion (laughs) in sales. That's insane. Every time I talk to someone from Chick-fil-A, the numbers are just higher. That's, but you know, you think about that 100 and some odd restaurants and how much 175 million in sales, you'll be like, yeah, we've arrived, right? Like this is, this is it. (laughs) I did, did, did anybody ever think like were the seeds of what Chick-fil-A would become. Did anyone have vision that big or it's just, you just kept doing this and it kept growing or how how did that happen? Well, when I look back to those early days that I was a part of Chick-fil-A, which there was just less than a hundred staff members. So the wonderful thing about the culture was that when I went to lunch, I sat down with Truett Cathy, the founder and the other executives in the company. And I was just a 21 year old administrator at the time. So (laughs) I had all of this exposure early in the business. And I have to tell you, I mean, Truett was doing what he loved. And if it had been up to him, it's often said that Chick-fil-A would have just been the original restaurant that he opened in Atlanta in 1946 because he just felt like the more restaurants you open, the more problems you had. So as Chick-fil-A began growing, the very first thing he did in the first Chick-fil-A restaurant in 1967 was to select an operator that would represent him in the uh, you know, and and be a franchisee rather than a general manager. He didn't want a bunch of company-owned stores, so that was part of the way Chick Fil A grew. Was that he was really focused on adding people that had a heart for service to customers and that had his same entrepreneurial spirit, but that he didn't have to watch over them all the time. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, that that's interesting because it is true. With more restaurants, you get more problems, more campuses, more people, more problems. That's the way it goes. Well, we're going to focus in on culture and people and talent 
today. And it's almost axiomatic now because Peter Drucker said it all these years ago, but that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Deanne, on why culture in a company matters so much. And Chick-fil-A has a culture that so many people love. So why does culture matter? Well, you know, when I, I'm a huge fan of Peter Drucker too, but I have to say, I think both are important, culture and strategy. But here's why the statement is true, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, in my opinion. And that's because without a strong culture, you cannot attract and keep the people that are going to create, develop, and execute that strategy. So a strong culture that attracts great talent is really, really important. And it's foundational because without a strong culture, people don't know how to operate. They don't know how to move forward to execute any kind of strategy or achieve any kind of goals without that kind of culture in place. So like, what is culture? How would you, how would you define it? You know, I've heard other people define it as that culture is what we do. And I like that, uh, definition, but my definition is that culture is the soul of the organization. And what I mean by that, it's who we are at the very deepest of our core. It absolutely drives everything we do. And so I, that when I think about culture, you know, that um, sense of who we are that creates uh, the behaviors that we demonstrate to everyone else, that's what culture is. Hmm. Yeah, because a lot of people would say they've worked in corporate and it's been soul sucking. It's interesting <laughs> that you would center that around the soul of the organization. Well, it's so funny because, I mean, that's one of the things I'll say about Chick-fil-A and why I stayed there for 33 years and why many people stayed there 20, 30 and 40 years. Um, and even Chick-fil-A restaurant team members often stay for a long time. It's life giving. It's soul breathing, not soul sucking. What was your career path at Chick-fil-A starting at uh, 21? You probably didn't start at the top of the org chart. So uh, what was that like for you? Well, I came in as an hourly administrator. And, <laughs> and the funny thing, Carrie, is that I was a pastor's wife at the time. That's another okay. story another day. But I was a pastor's wife. And so I was looking for a job that was convenient to where we lived. And, and really, I was going to you know stay home with the kids and raise the family and be the preacher's wife. And things just took off. I just had this incredible opportunity. And it wasn't just opportunity, but it was really a calling that I felt. And my background had been journalism and marketing. Chick-fil-A hired me into a human resources role. And it wasn't too long that I discovered that my path was helping other people find their path. Oh, really? Okay. So can, can you dissect that a little bit? Because that's really interesting. I know so many women uh, and I have some on my team who are like, yeah, I think I'm going to be a mom and I'll just do a few hours to, you know, help pay the bills and get me out of kid world. And you really discovered a calling. So what did that sequence look like for you? So after I had been in my role for about 18 months, um, the guy who had taught me so much, he resigned and left Chick-fil-A. And for a little while, Chick-fil-A wasn't really sure where I was going to work because I worked for him. I was his administrator. And so a lot of things were considered for about six months. In the meantime, I just kept doing what he had taught me to do. And I was creating the selection systems at the time for the corporate staff because there just were none. Resumes would float all over the place. There was no process for referencing. There was no process for doing anything, and which resulted in candidates being treated really poorly. So mm. part of the way I built my reputation was being sure we were treating candidates better. 
And um, that meant that Truett Cathy was getting less what we called you've done me wrong letters. Um, <laughs> and so after about six months of doing that, the organization decided, well, let's leave her here because she's adding value here. So I began working on that. I did that and, and led that part of the, which was a much smaller part of the business at that time. But I led human resources focused on the corporate staff selection. After a few years of that, I had the opportunity to do one of my favorite jobs, which was to be a recruiter for franchisees. And I had the Northeast portion of the United States. And what was so fun about that is that the marketing part of me really came out. Because at those, in those days, this is in the late 80s, people didn't know a whole lot about Chick-fil-A in that part of the country. So they called it Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A, all kinds of names. And I had the opportunity to introduce them to the brand. So that was pretty exciting. Well, after um, doing that for a little while and being on the road, hundreds, you know, 100,000 miles a year, um, I had my first child. We had our first child. And, and so I uh, came back out of the field and began leading human resources and franchisee selection for the organization. And I told you how the numbers grew. So then the responsibilities grew and the role grew and, and um, through the 90s. And then uh, in 1999, my boss, who led all of human resources for Chick-fil-A, uh, retired and I became Chick-fil-A's first female officer. Um, mm. leading the human resources and talent functions. And I stayed in that role until 2015. And the, all, the most interesting thing happened the day my first book was released, my 30th anniversary is the same day I moved to a different role in Chick-fil-A leading social responsibility. Oh, what, what was that portfolio social responsibility? Social responsibility at the time included um, really focusing on all the social and um, environmental issues that Chick-fil-A wanted to address. It was a brand new function. Um, really, it was about setting strategy. The execution didn't come till about the time I retired. Uh, some of those things were really beginning to play out, but it was focused around, you know, all of those people, social type issues, volunteerism, and then all the environmental issues around packaging and food waste and uh, packaging waste and so forth. Well, before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about a mutual friend, Cheryl Batchelder, who's been a previous guest on this podcast. And she was uh, CEO of Popeye's, really led the turnaround at Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. And it's so funny because when I think about her story or even Carly Fiorina's, it's mm -hmm. a very similar thing to yours, which is, yeah, I was given kind of a, an assistant position and I just kind of saw an opportunity and jumped on it. Can you, can you say more about what, <laughs> like, like that's not always the career path. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I admire both of those women and I'm honored you'd use my name in the same conversation. But, you know, it was, I called myself the accidental VP um, mm. because I really, I was pursuing, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, I was pursuing this calling that God laid on my heart. And when I would sit down with people in an interview, and it might be a young person, might be somebody changing careers, but I would sit down in this interview and they would begin to tell me their life story and what their dreams and desires were. And God just gave me this gift of being able to identify what it, where they would fit in, you know, and mm. what, and what their path might be and, and help facilitate the opportunity for them. You know, I have a lot of Chick-fil-A franchisees that will say to me, Deanne, thank you so much for giving me this incredible opportunity. And I always remind them, 
I did not give them the opportunity. Truett Cathy gave them the opportunity. I was just his facilitator. But I love that role of facilitator of people's dreams. And so that was just what motivated me. I, I mean, honestly, I couldn't wait to get to work every day um, to see who I was going to meet and put the pieces of the puzzle of their career together. Um, and, and, you know, I, I like to tell people, while we and my team, we did this every single day and we might we might have 30 or 40 candidates during the course of a week that we spend time with. These were life changing opportunities for these people. I mean, many of them went from I have a um, one guy in mind. I mean, he was an hourly team member starting at 15 years old. And, you know, now he operates three Chick-fil-A restaurants. I'm Tens of dollars of business and watch somebody grow and have that dream come true um, is really, really exciting. And that's what I found my calling to be. Oh, wow. Now, you, you were talking about culture, and I can see almost immediately you started shaping culture because you saw a problem. It's like, okay, these candidates are bouncing around like ping pong balls, and we've got to create a better experience for them. We, we have talked about soul sucking culture. Talk to us about being part of a bad culture because you've had some bad culture experiences. You shaped culture and Chick-fil-A is known for its culture. But talk about your bad culture experience pre-Chick-fil-A and then a little bit about why so many companies and so many churches and organizations have bad cultures. Well, my bad culture experience was right before I came to work at Chick-fil-A. I've already established I was really young and I was working for this business and I worked for this boss who just, he smothered the culture in rules. There were rules about everything. You know, if you were even 30 seconds late from your 30 minute lunch, you were docked your pay. And he had this one particular rule. Um, He took a nap every day after lunch. Now I'm not talking about power naps that executives uh, might take now, you know, for 10 minutes to regain their energy. I'm talking about a full on snoring two hour nap. Oh my gosh. And on top of that, and he was he was head of the company, and on top of that, he left strict instructions. He was not to be disturbed under any condition. Well, one day I was sitting at the receptionist's desk, and um, the FBI showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and naturally, it was during the boss's nap time. And they showed their badges, and my 20-year-old self, just as proud as I could be, I said, I'm sorry, he's not available. And of course, you know what they did. (laughs) They said, let's make him available. Um, But you know what had happened to me and what happens in so many organizations, I was so full of that toxic culture myself that I was more concerned about waking my boss from his nap than I was obstructing federal armed agents. And that's where things get askew sometimes, you know? And, And so to me, a bad culture is always characterized with a stack of rules that people are compliant to. And in remarkable cultures, people generally are in a principle-centered culture. Now, we have to have rules. I mean, you know, in the restaurant industry, you've got to have food safety rules. You have to have security rules. You have to follow generally accepted accounting practices. There's a place for rules. But when we're so bound by rules that people can't exercise any judgment at all, then that's what creates toxic cultures and they'll start making up their own rules. And you you might you probably don't even realize you're a part of this sometimes, but you'll go in a business and you'll ask for something and and someone can't help you and the next thing I'll give you an example. So I was hmm. traveling not long ago and uh, the entire experience was one in which I observed that I was in a rule-based culture. 
But the one that really hit me was I had ordered my room service and they called me about three minutes before the window expired, the the 30 minute window where they bring you the food and they let me know they're on their way. And when they showed up, as she walked in, she's carrying the tray and she said, well, I sure hope you have a coffee cup in here because I forgot one. That was the first time something wasn't going to go well, but it kept going. And, And as she put the food down, she said, you know, you didn't check bread on your menu. So when people don't check the bread, I just don't bring any. And, and and she saw the look on my face and she said, but I can go get you an English muffin if you want me to. The funny thing was she brought me jelly, but no bread. So she left. And as she went away, I thought about this whole thing. And I thought, you know, when she called me, she could have asked me if I wanted bread. The bread was included and I hadn't checked it. And did I want any bread? But she was so engaged in her toxic rule-based culture that she'd started making up her own rules. And that's what happens in those kind of cultures. So um, toxic cultures are ones in which, you know, people aren't focused. They're focused on the rules. They're not focused on why they're there to begin with, which is to serve the customer. I just feel like I have to ask, uh, and maybe you can say, and maybe you can't, what was the FBI doing at the company? (laughs) Well, you're right. I can't say. (laughs) Uh, Did he wake up from his nap? He did wake up from his nap. And, and I will say this, it wasn't the end of the business, but there there was a big problem. So. Yeah, there was a big problem. When the FBI shows up, it's it's usually not a parking ticket. That's funny. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And and so, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about, we've all worked. I, I'm thinking about past jobs when I was in my early 20s or late teens where there were just so many rules and it is soul sucking. Why do you think even thinking about that boss, there were just so many, because clearly there was a double standard. I mean, I'm sure if he went uh, two hours and three minutes on his nap, he was not going to dock himself pay, right? So there's definitely a double standard all over the place. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. How do you get there as a leader? Well, you know, I, I know that over time, you know, when I think about bad bosses, because all of us aren't perfect leaders, I would imagine that any of us at any time have been the bad boss. I know I have, you know, I look back, I have, I mean, I know I made mistakes from time to time. Um, but when I think about the people who consistently would have that label bad boss, I think about number one, people who don't listen, they don't listen to anything. They don't listen to feedback. They don't listen to ideas. They don't even accept questions. They're just characterized by not being good listeners. That's one of the first um, things I think about when I think about a bad boss. I think about a bad boss, someone who's inaccessible to their people. Um, they don't spend time coaching or developing. They're always doing something quote unquote more important and instead of stewarding the talent that's been entrusted to them. You know, I think about my own self as a young leader when I think about that example and, you know, what happens when you're, you're rising through the ranks of an organization up, upper management's requiring so much of you and you're, you know, you need to be at this meeting and you need to be at that meeting and your schedule's constantly changing. And all of a sudden you find that what you're putting second, third, or fourth are the very people that help you get things done. You're canceling those meetings or you're showing up late for the people who actually are part of your team. In reality, those are really the very most important responsibility that you have as a leader is the people. And 
what happens is, you know, bad bosses typically sometimes um, they're in organizations that are they're being recognized for serving upper management without the recognition that in doing so, they're not serving the very people that are helping them. So being inaccessible is a is a trait to me of a, a poor um, boss. And then, you know, lastly, I think about bad bosses don't hold people accountable. They don't give appropriate feedback. They don't um, help people grow. Um, and, you know, I always thought about that when, when we, as a leader, if we don't do that, if we don't take that time to sit down and give that feedback, we're stealing that person's life. We're not giving them what they need to either grow in their job or quite frankly, if it's not working, to go do something else they can be successful in. And so it's so important that we hold people accountable and that we give them great feedback. And, you know, the only other thing I would add to that, and I've, you know, had this experience, fortunately, only once or twice. But the other thing that you hear so much about, but it's um, so true, is is uh, sometimes bad bosses are bullies. And, you know, you find that a lot of places as well that just totally intimidate people. And where we lose in culture, when we have an organization that allows that to exist, then we lose the collaboration and the best ideas and the best of our talent that's part of the organization. Can you talk a little bit more about accountability? Because I think that's a really good point. And I think a lot of not-for-profit church leaders struggle with that. A lot of bosses who maybe are a little bit more relationally minded. uh, And frankly, you know what, if you're task-oriented, you can give feedback the wrong way too. So from what I know, and I've met most of the entire executive leadership team at Chick-fil-A, it seems like a very humble, grace-based culture. How do you, how do you manage the, okay, I want to be kind, I want to be gracious, and yet I've got to give feedback. Can you, can you walk us through your approach or other effective approaches that you've seen? Sure. And it's one of the things that I had to really grow in because yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to be liked. And, um, I had a boss who told me early on, he said, if, if that, he said, you don't want to be liked, you don't want to be popular. You want to be respected. That's what he taught me. And when we want to be liked, then we're nice. When we truly care about somebody else, we're kind. So let's Mm. think about that for a moment. It's kindness. So when we hold people accountable and give them feedback, I think that's a much kinder thing to do. And what I mean by kindness is by giving them feedback, they either know what to keep doing because they're Mm -hmm. doing it well and they're being successful or what they need to do differently so they can be more successful. Or maybe actually they're not suited for what they're doing at all. And the kindest thing you can do is give them the feedback and help them get to their next place that they can be successful. But instead, sometimes as leaders, we want to be liked. So what we do is we try to be nice. And we don't want to have those hard conversations because that doesn't feel very nice. Well, the truth of the matter is when we're trying to be nice, we're more concerned with what people think of us. It's about me when I'm nice. When I'm kind, it's about how much I care about you. Oh, that's so helpful. That, that is really true. You're right. The avoidance that we have in so many circles, the avoidance of conflict, the I'm not going to tell them, uh, that's actually very selfish at the end of the day. It's a good lens to think about that through. Okay, so switching gears, and I know this is a huge culture. What are some of the elements of a great culture? Because you write about it uh, quite a bit in your new book. Yeah, it is a big question, but I actually think it's a pretty simple formula. And so, um, and I think of it as three key elements. 
first of all, it's a meaningful purpose. Your purpose, as you know, is your why. Why have you decided to start this organization at all? Why do you exist as a business, as a ministry, even as a family? What is your purpose for being? That's the big why. The second part of a remarkable culture is to have a challenging mission. What big goal are you pursuing together? What are you going to rally around to accomplish? Um, You know, purpose generally doesn't change. Your why stays the same. This is why we do what we do. But a challenging mission, once it's accomplished, it's time to set a new mission. So missions will change within a culture during different seasons. And lastly, the third key element to me is demonstrated core values. What are the behaviors that are going to live out this purpose and mission. And I I call those three things together when you create that. And stay with me for a moment because this is all a formula. But those three things added together, I call that the recipe for a remarkable culture. Hmm. And then when you add extraordinary talent to that, um, those things together, they create amazing customer experiences. And so when you do that over time, you end up with legendary customer service. So that's the formula, remarkable culture plus extraordinary talent plus amazing customer experiences equal legendary customer service. Oh, that's that's cool. I want to drill down for a second on values because in the book, you talk about things like excellence and treat others with honor, dignity and respect. And that's definitely a debate when people are setting cultural values, how do you make sure like with a value like excellence or whatever you want to call it, that that just doesn't become a platitude or a generality that, that uh, sits on a wall somewhere or in a desk drawer that, you know, on a statement, a piece of paper that nobody reads. Like how do you, how do you actually get specificity, specificity (laughs) is the word to what, uh, what, what excellence would mean? Yeah, you've brought you've brought up a great point. And you know what? They're all platitudes unless one thing happens, and that's that, dem- that they are demonstrated consistently day in and day out. And by the way, from top to bottom, it starts with the leader. When you define what the core values are, the leader has to demonstrate them. And then they have to be part of everything the organization does. You select for them, you develop for them, you promote for them. Um, those things are expected to be demonstrated on a daily basis. You know, I, I will compliment Chick-fil-A on that. I mean, you, um, you know, if you use the example, treat everybody with honor, dignity, and respect. Um, well, it's not a formal value. It is one of their guiding principles, and it's the hospitality policy of Chick-fil-A. And so when I think about even as a customer, obviously, I also am a customer to many, many Chick-fil-A restaurants. So I travel the country. I can't think of a time when I or have ever observed anybody not be treated that way? Or have you ever heard of anybody not be treated with the honor, dignity, and respect? Mm. You know, in, in the day of social media, if it happened, it would be everywhere, right? Oh, yeah. And I've never seen it happen. I don't believe that it does. It's so ingrained in the behavior of who the organization is. So that's the important part of, of core values. If you just hang them on a wall and you don't discuss them every time you're together and you don't demonstrate them, on a regular basis, then they are just platitudes. Any guidance on how to select your values? I mean, I've been through that a couple of times with our church and then with my company where I'm like, wow, we got to pull these out of the air. Any thoughts on some of the best methods to do that? Well, first of all, you know, deciding what's most important to you as the leader of the organization. Um, I think all of this, you know, I, I think you certainly want input from everybody. You have to have input from everybody, but 
all of this begins with the leader. So much so, you know, right after I, I retired from Chick-fil-A and started my own consulting business, I had the CEO of a, oh, a $15 billion business, international, global business, 10 countries, tens of thousands of employees called me. And he said, hey, we've got some cultural problems that we want to fix. Can you help me? And I said, well, I have a question for you. Who's responsible for culture? And he said, I am. And I said, then we're in business. Let's get started. Because too often, organizations delegate culture to something within the human resources or talent function or within, you know, some area of the business. And it needs to be, you know, job one for the number one. And so let's start there. What's important to the wow. leader? That's how Chick-fil-A's values became what they are is because what was important to Truett Cathy. And then secondly, what are the behaviors that will support the purpose and mission of the organization? Because that's really what you're trying to achieve. So what behaviors do you want your staff and leaders to demonstrate every day? And then, you know, lastly, what are you as a leader willing to walk the talk with every day? You can't call integrity one of your values if you're not willing to show integrity and demonstrate that in everything you do. So that's the conversation, I think, that helps start choose those values. That's really clarifying. So um, what I want to do is, because uh, this is one of your key messages, is talk about selecting talent. So what are what's some of the secret sauce you've developed? Because Chick-fil-A is known for great talent, for selecting great talent. Sure. Well, you know, there's the criteria and then there's the process. And it's really the, the combination of those two that's helped Chick-fil-A be successful at that and other organizations too. My criteria for selecting talent are three things. I call them the three C's, character, competency, and chemistry. So character, well, character always comes first. You know, what is the, what's at the core of this person? How well do they uh, align with the purpose, mission, and values of the organization? I'm looking for character that matches the organization. So secondly, I'm looking for competency that matches the role. And I'm not just looking at the skills and talent that's needed today, but you know what? I'm keeping my eye out on the future. What are my future leadership needs going to be? What is my What are my future talents? What jobs are going to exist in the future that don't even exist today? And I want to consider those skills in the competency of the talent that I select so that I have strength for the future. And then lastly, I want chemistry that matches the team. So how well does this person fit in with the group of people they're going to work with? You know, um, and sometimes I'll give you an example. uh, Let's say they're going to be a role that we called at Chick-fil-A a business consultant. Well, how well are they going to fit in with a team of franchisees? Are they going to be accepting of this person to come in and help them grow their business? And so chemistry is a real key point too. So that's, that's what I look for. Character that matches the organization, competency that matches the role and chemistry that matches the team. That's good. How, how do you select for character? How do you, how do you do that? Well, there's a couple of things I do. First of all, I mentioned this before, you know, I'm looking for somebody who's, uh, who matches the purpose and mission and value and you're looking at their past and you're asking them behavioral-based questions to, you know, tell me about a time. And, you know, if my, uh, give me an example, one of my core values is, is here to serve. Okay, well, so I want to know about how this person has served other people in their organization, outside of their organization. What's their heart for service if they're coming into a business that values that highly? So that's the first thing I'm doing is trying to align that with the, with the uh, purpose, mission, and values of the organization. Then secondly, I want that candidate to be able to self-select. 
So I'm going to be sure that they have an abundant opportunity to know what the culture of the organization is and all of these things, purpose, mission, values, and um, the daily behaviors and what the routines are like, because I want them to decide if it's the right character match for them or not. So I give them a lot of exposure to that while I'm, while I'm uh, learning all about them, I'm inviting them to learn about the organization as well. And lastly, here's something really unusual that I did, particularly when I was selecting franchisees. I took all of that information and I had one final question that I asked the candidate, and it was this. I would look at them and I'd say, why would I want my three children to work for you? Mm. And that was the question I asked myself when I made the decision. Why would I want my children to work for this person? Because um, if I wouldn't want my own sons to work for this person, why would I expect anybody else to? And that was kind of my final character question. And it led to some great discussions, as you can ima- imagine, with candidates. I was consulting with a company. And, and you know, you might think, of that, oh, that's great, DM franchisees. Um, you can ask that kind of question. I can't do that with the employees. That's true. But I was consulting with a company not long ago when we were talking about this. And what they do is food service for school systems. So they're okay. hiring people who serve food to children at lunchtime and breakfast every day. So I said, it's a simple question. You ask your candidates, why would I want you to serve my child? So mm. it's an applicable situation. It's making it personal. And that helps me select for character. Are there deal killers? Like when somebody comes in and if you see trait A, B, or C, you're like, yep, we're not, we're not going to hire that person. Are there any that are almost like a veto over the hire? I laugh because, you know, there's a lot of myth around that within an organization. I mean, even within the organization, not to mention outside of the organization. But for me, um, you know, let me give you an example of something. And I've taught this to my boys, too. It is so important to always tell the truth in an interview process. Now, people might think, well, Deanne, of course, that's I mean, that's just but you'd be surprised how many people don't. Those kinds of things, you you know, don't fudge anywhere is my because that will be for me. That was always the deal killer. If I found that somebody had not been you know, truthful and had told some kind of untruth at any part of the interview process, that would be a deal killer. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I was with a group yesterday. We spent the day together just kind of consulting, brainstorming. And he has a team that's just a little bigger than my team. And we talked about the characteristic of self-starter, particularly as running virtual companies. That is such a deal breaker for me. Like if you're not a self-starter, if you don't take the initiative, if you're waiting there for somebody to tell you what to do and you can't see the work, it's, right. it's a no-go. Any other things on character or selection that as you look back over your experience is like, oh yeah, here's another characteristic. Like this almost always works out or this characteristic doesn't. One of the things I really look for is people who have this attitude. If it is to be, it's up to me. They have an internal mm. locus of control. Mm-hmm. And when you find that, they're almost always successful. You know, yeah. that's a trait and it's hard to find. Um, but when you find those people who really, um, you know, they have a, a low blame avoidance. They're not blaming other people. They're really taking personal responsibility for themselves and for what they accomplish. That's one of the ones that I would have to say um, I really looked for uh, when I was looking for people and found that people would be successful when they had that. No, that's good. 
So a lot of leaders would say, well, Dan, that's great. You're Chick-fil-A. Awesome. You know, we're not a multi-billion dollar company and uh, we're not in every major city. So I just can't find enough people locally with the right attitude, the right work ethic and the right heart to really staff my organization. How would you respond to people who feel that way, who say you don't see the stack of applications or the roster of candidates? I see. Any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, let's remember that Chick-fil-A is a soon to be $12 billion operation, but it's made up of all these individual franchisees that are just much, much smaller companies that are trying to do the same thing that these people you talk about are trying to do. And this is the way I've seen the, the ones do this really, really well. Let me first say this to you, though. What you talk about, this full employment rate, so in my almost 35-year career, I've seen this cycle three times. Wow. This is by far the worst. I've never seen it more difficult to find and keep great talent. In fact, I was I was reading an article just yesterday, and, it, and this was the essence of how it defined the economy. It said, you know, before the internet, employees didn't have so many options to change jobs. Hmm. Um, you know, they they would be a little bit more stable and um, they value tenure over flexibility, but you know, that's just not true anymore. They're comfortable exiting and, and uh, more than half employees right now are looking for a job. According to this article, uh, they're happy to join the whole, you know, uh, where we are in the economy. They all want to start their own business, be their own leader. Um, and there's lots of opportunities to do that. Uh, today, they don't, tolerate command and control leadership as much. And if they feel like they're being micromanaged or strictly scrutinized, they feel comfortable jumping ship and finding a new job. And what they're looking for is autonomy, respect, and a sense of purpose and ownership. And so when we think about those things, it's really created this, this movement of where people are moving about every two to five years. Um, but this is what people can do. Number one is you want to be a place that people want to come to work for. And even in some of the most difficult roles, so I was talking about that food service company earlier, and there was one of the leaders in that whole organization, She, even in this full economy, she had people waiting in line to work for her because she had created, created a culture that people wanted to be a part of. The second thing is you always have to be recruiting talent. I worked with this superior executive at Chick-fil-A, and one of the things I loved about him in all the years we worked together for over three decades he was always, wherever he went, he was recruiting talent. Even if he didn't have a role, he was networking, he was building relationships, he would send Christmas cards, he would do whatever to stay in touch with people. And when he had a job, he never sent me an email that said, hey, Deanne, I've got this role and I need you. I need you. He sent me an email that said, hey, if you'll pull the applications on one, two, three, four, and five, I have people who can fill this role. He already he was, knew. He already he knew. He already knew hire. because he was wow. always recruiting. So- um, those two things I think are really, really important. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I've seen some of the Chick-fil-A franchisees, they do some amazing things. They're creative about how they retain staff. They, one of the things they do is they foster the dreams of their employees and like, what does that mean? You know, Matthew Kelly wrote the dream manager. So it's a great resource when you talk about fostering dreams, but finding out what's really important to people. So, you know, for one, uh, for a lot of team members, you know, a college education, okay, there are college scholarship programs to help with that. That's there. But then there's some really unusual things like this one operator in Atlanta, his um, daughter, when she was a little girl, he took his daughter to the Chick-fil-A Support Center and she met Truett Kathy. And he said to her, you have the most beautiful smile. That's really going to take you places. 
He loved the encouragement that his daughter got about her smile. And so he decided as a Chick-fil-A franchisee, one of the things he wanted to do was provide smiles, beautiful smiles for his employees. So what this guy does is he provides orthodontic care for his employees. I mean, personally pays. Now, I'm not talking about insurance. I'm talking about personally pays for their orthodontic care. And get this. Some of them don't have transportation to go to their appointments. So you know what happens? His wife comes and picks them up and drives them to their appointments. I saw him not long ago. In fact, I'm going to see him tomorrow, but I saw him not long ago. And I asked him, I said, how many different team members have you provided braces for now? And he said, oh, a couple dozen. And uh, so, you know, he's just fostering somebody's dream. And I could tell you, I could tell you story after story after story of franchisees like that. And it builds this uncommon loyalty that all of a sudden somebody's just not so open to going down the street for a nickel or 10 cents or even 50 cents more. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Sure, it happens. But people, you know, today, employees in this job market, they're, work, they're looking for people who are willing to spend time developing them and they want to be a part of something far bigger than themselves. And so when you can spend time, invest in people, develop them for what's important to them, and also connect their work to something that has lasting impact, you're going to have a better chance of attracting great talent and retaining them. I love asking this next question to uh, leaders, particularly leaders of large organizations that have a lot of employees who perhaps are not making six figures a year. Is that fair? If you're, if you're like uh, making chicken burgers, you're probably the chicken sandwiches. You're, you're actually not uh, making a ton of money. And whether that's minimum wage or just above minimum wage. And I think a lot of people historically have said to themselves, you know, well, I'll just pay people more, but that's just not realistic when you're at scale uh, for every position. So I want you to think about frontline workers, entry-level workers, uh, and you obviously have tens of thousands of them right now at Chick-fil-A. Any particular strategies, you've covered a lot already, but for motivating and keeping those frontline workers engaged? Well, you know, all of those workers are actually the employees of all those individual franchisees. So they're not employees of Chick-fil-A. And what we found that, you know, people decisions are the most important decision a leader makes. And within the Chick-fil-A company, the most important decision that they make is who gets the keys to the restaurant. So if you make great selection decisions then those people will be the kinds of leaders that will attract great talent and motivate them. So what did they do? I I think that's important to start there because it's really a phenomenon. When people say, how did Chick-fil-A get all this great talent? You've got all these people that stand at the the, uh, counter and they smile and they say, my pleasure in the drive-thru and they, you know, they do all these amazing things for customers. How'd you get them to do that? It's like, we didn't get them to do anything. It was these individual franchisees. So I think what Chick-fil-A did right was select the right leaders. And that's what other organizations, be sure you select the right leader. But then secondly, when I look at them and I say, how did they motivate them? Well, one of the things they did was to have this, this attitude of, you know, these are, these people are passing through, you know, their goal is not to keep people working behind a counter for 10 years. Now there's some that will, because that's the work that they want to do. But the majority of these people are on their way to somewhere else. Mm. And the operators are the franchisees. I use that term interchangeably. They're such great leaders that 
they see it their job to help them get to that place. They want the best of them while they're there. But, you know, they're proud when they see their team member move on to the next stage in life and what they're going to accomplish. They, in fact, you might say some of them have decided what they want to be is somebody's best first employer. They want to mm. be the person who instills the skills into someone that helps them be successful later in their life. So you have a culture that seems to be very, very consistent from restaurant to restaurant, and that is the responsibility of the franchisees. But how do you get 17-year-olds to smile, to not complain when it's 100 degrees and they're doing the double drive-through order and they're kind of melting? Like, Because <laughs> we've all had horrible experiences where uh, people who are probably paid better than that have lost all motivation. They treat us like dirt. They don't really care. It's not my department. So when you have that kind of infectious culture, what are some of the keys to replicating that across the country, state to state, location to location, so consistently? That to me is one of the biggest phenomena of Chick-fil-A. Yeah. I tell people that I get asked this all the time. How do you get that consistency from Charlotte to Orange County, California, to San Antonio, to, um, you know, Il Chicago, Illinois? How do you do that? And it goes back to the selecting the right leaders to begin with. But here's what those leaders do. We're back to where we started this interview. It's all about principles. Now, actually, we almost derailed a couple of uh, principles that Chick-fil-A is really known for. You mentioned you know, getting them to say my pleasure with a smile mm -hmm. on their face. I'll tell you a quick story, Carrie. So that came about as a result of Truett had been visiting Ritz-Carlton hotels. Yeah. And he loved the way that when he said thank you, that the employee would respond with my pleasure. And he thought, wouldn't that be a great thing to say in Chick-fil-A restaurants, a fast food restaurant that had a, a you know, an upper level hospitality response? So he came to the annual conference and he told a much longer version of the story than I just told you about his experience at Ritz-Carlton. And he asked all the franchisees, he said, you know, when a guest says thank you, I would like for your team members to say my pleasure. Well, we all went away from our annual conference and nothing changed. Nobody yeah. said my pleasure. It didn't happen. Um, now, interestingly, this goes on for several years. I, I wish I could take you through every year. It went on for 10 years. Every year he came to the conference. Every year he told the story. The 10th year, he, he stood in front of the podium. He said, now I mean it. And I think he kind of slammed his fist down on the podium a little bit. And he said, when your guests say thank you, I want your team members to say my pleasure. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world could the CEO of a company be asking his employees to do something and they don't do it or his franchisees to do something? But you have to understand that when most of these people went into business with Chick-fil-A, they only had three rules. Don't open on Sunday, don't change the menu, and put the money in the bank. So yeah. they thought Truett was just making a suggestion because we didn't have many rules. So that Dan, his son, said, hey, I think Dad's serious. We're going to say my pleasure. So, But this is the beautiful part. Those operators didn't go back to their team members. They're most predominantly teenagers, as you mentioned. They didn't go back and say, okay, now when a guest says, thank you, you say my pleasure. Be sure you say my pleasure. Say my pleasure because Truett could show up and we didn't say my pleasure and we'll get in trouble. They didn't do that at all. You know what they did? They taught their team members a principle. And they said, we're in business because we have customers. Customers provide the paycheck. Customers provide the next promotion. Customers pay for the Christmas party. Customers pay for the ski outing. 
Customers are why we're here. So it is our pleasure to serve. And we'll communicate that to them in everything we do. So the team members, that's why when you go into a Chick-fil-A and you get that really sincere, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to do that for you. I'm happy to serve. It's because that franchisee didn't teach them a rule to say my pleasure. That franchisee taught a principle that we're here to serve. Isn't that fascinating? So two things. Number one, uh, Rhodes Carlton, that language came from Horst Schultze. He's a previous guest. We'll link yes. to that in the show notes. But the other thing that's really fascinating. So Chick-fil-A is doing uh, 2019, its first international expansion into Canada. And about 18 months ago, Dan Cathy and the entire executive leadership team flew into Toronto and I had the privilege of meeting with them. And they asked about, you know, it was just a pick your brain session where what would it be like to come to Canada? And one of the things I got to share with Dan and the whole leadership team was the fact that whole my pleasure thing, which Chick-fil-A is now better known for than even Ritz-Carlton because far more people go to Chick-fil-A yeah. than a Ritz-Carlton. I've never right. been to a Ritz-Carlton. But anyway, uh, but I have been to many Chick-fil-A's. I said, here's what's fascinating. I said, I think the number one thing you bring to a place where you go there is actually not the chicken sandwich, as great as it is. It's a culture. It's teaching young employees, how to live, how to work, how to be in the workplace, which is sorely needed in Canada. And secondly, you've already changed our culture because there's not a single Chick-fil-A in Canada. There was one, I guess, in Calgary, but it's closed now. Everywhere you go now in higher end service industries and even in restaurants, nobody says you're welcome. Everybody says my pleasure. It's a verbal meme that's just kind of caught on way beyond Chick-fil-A. And I said, you've already changed the country. And, uh, and they didn't know that. Like, but that is the power of phraseology. Like Chick-fil-A has changed the entire hospitality service industry. And that has just caught on. It's fascinating. Yes, I, I find the same thing as I travel about. And I love it when I go someplace. And a lot of times I, when I publish my first book, It's My Pleasure, I'd have copies with me. And if I was in another business and somebody said my pleasure, I'd give them a copy of the book. No way. That's awesome. So a couple of other things you've got, you've got, we talked about the executive level, we've talked about franchisees, we've talked about employees, but you also, and you have a section in your book where you talk about raving fans, like I I just call that raving fans, right? So you've got guests who actually become part of the culture. How do you, how do you do that? How do you get guests on board? Because, you know, with the whole Popeye's uh, introducing (laughs) a chicken sandwich thing, man, my social media blew up with all these raving fans of Chick-fil-A sort of defending the chicken sandwich, the original chicken sandwich. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've got that. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you do that for your members, your customers, uh, wider in the organization? Sure. Well, the chicken is good. It's very, it is very, very good. good. No question about it. And it was the first. Hmm. But, you know, we always knew along the way that anybody can copy a product. You know, a good chef can break it down, even though it's a secret sauce. They can break it down. They can figure out what the ingredients are. They can copy it. And many have tried to do that over the years. In fact, years ago, when when that first started happening and a lot of the other restaurants, quick service restaurants started getting into the chicken business, Chick-fil-A turned its attention on some other areas to step up on. One, of course, is service. And the other was creating remarkable experiences. And so... A lot of it is just mirroring what Truett did in his original restaurant. You know, his customers came in, he knew their name, their regular orders, and he knew their stories. And so these franchisees have done the same thing. They care intensely about their customers. 
you, you know, when, uh, Carrie, when you and I were growing up, there was a show on TV, Cheers, you know, where oh, you yeah. go where everybody yeah, knows, everybody your, knows name. your name. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, in the Chick-fil-A in a lot of communities has become the same kind of place. It's a place you go. It's not just because the food is good. It's because you feel good when you go there. And they've created that kind of culture that goes not just the way they treat their employees, but all the way into the way they treat their guests so much so that the guests have become a part of it. So just a couple quick stories about raving yeah, fans. Yeah. I think of Mr. John. Mr. John is down in Florida and he, uh, he ate all the time at a Chick-fil-A restaurant and, uh, his wife passed away. She'd been sick and she passed away. And all of a sudden the employees noticed that Mr. John was there by himself and he was still coming to Chick-fil-A a lot because he was lonely. And so he came there every day as a matter of fact. And, and Mr. John was in his late seventies when this happened. Now he's into his early nineties and, but he, he had lost his wife and he was so lonely and sad. He just came to Chick-fil-A every day. Well, they became his family. And so they made Mr. John part of that restaurant. He had his own name. He had the very first name tag that said raving fan on it. Oh, um, no he had his own table that he <sighs> sat at every day. But Mr. John was so grateful for the way that those employees took him in that he became part of the culture of the restaurant. And so he would do things, you know, there aren't many cool days and, in southwestern Florida, but when they would have one, he'd bring his own hair dryer from home, plug it in, and warm the hands of guests as they came into the restaurant. No way. As an example. And so, I mean, you just, this is what's the differentiator. You can copy chicken sandwiches all day long, but it's really hard to copy that level of engagement with guests. Let me tell you another story that really illustrates this remarkable culture and engaging guests in this remarkable culture. Uh, you probably remember Hurricane Harvey, September 2017. Here we are right on the, as we talk um, in that season, but it hit Houston in the end of August there. And I mean, just amazing. Uh, I mean, it was there for six days, 33 trillion gallons of water j- dropped on yeah. Houston and people were flooded out of their homes, et cetera. Well, as it become common for Chick-fil-A when such disasters happen, if we have utilities and uh, equipment and supplies, the Chick-fil-A restaurants will sometimes open for the purpose of feeding those in need, especially first responders. That was going on in one of the restaurants in Houston during Hurricane Harvey. And uh, a team member named Jeff Urban was in Mike Ludwig's restaurant, and he was thawing chicken uh, that would be served to first responders later in the day. The restaurant was closed. The phone was ringing off the hook, and Jeff knew that he could not answer every single call that came mm-hmm. through. But he saw a familiar name pop up on the screen, and that was Mr. J.C. Spencer. And he said, you know, I just, I know that sweet couple. I know their regular order. I know their story. I need to pick up the phone and let him know that we are closed for the day. So when he picked up the phone, Mr. Spencer wanted his his breakfast burrito. He said, Jeff, I need two breakfast burritos with extra egg and a boat. (laughs) <laughs> and he then explained that he had called the police, he had called 911, that he and his wife were being flooded out of their home, and there was no help available to him, and could Jeff do anything to help? So Jeff, he called his human resources director not to ask permission, but because he knew Cindy's husband had a boat. And huh. so he gave the address of the couple. They picked up some jet skis on their way to pick up the Spencers so that they could put the Spencers on the back of the jet skis and preserve a few of their special belongings in the boat. And, you know, to me, that's my very favorite example 
of really engaging customers in your culture that here was a couple of senior citizens in a life-threatening situation. The water was rising in their home and the most logical thing they came up with after they exhausted all other possibilities was to call their favorite chicken restaurant. That's incredible. Wow. It is incredible. Well, and that those stories spread. So Deanne, uh, last question for you. Chick-fil-A is widely known for its culture and people. Anything else you want to share that maybe people don't know about Chick-fil-A and how it's had such a remarkable ascendance? No, after spending 33 years there, I've been away for a year and looking at all of it from a different perspective. Now my situation is a little different from some people because I'm still an ambassador and I do a lot of speaking and some coaching in parts of the organization, but it's truly a different perspective. And this is what I know about Chick-fil-A. It's the real deal. And here's why. The entire operation is built around having a heart for service. Whether it's the team members and the franchisees serving guests, or it's the staff serving the franchisees, or even the CEO who serves all of them, the organization has a heart for service, and that's why it works so well. And that heart has extended far beyond the doors of any restaurant, and the people within the organization have stewarded the brand and its resources so well that people who are in parts of the world who will never taste a Chick-fil-A sandwich has tasted the generosity that comes from a heart of service. Mm. And that might be the part that people don't know about Chick-fil-A. That's awesome. Well, Deanne, this has been amazing. I would love for you to tell us where people can find you and find your book. Sure. Um, well, you can find me at deanneturner.com, D-E-E-A-N-N, Turner. Dot com, and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Deanne Turner and on my Facebook author page. And I would love to connect with your guest in all of those places, Carrie. That would be great. And the book is called Bet on Talent. It's called Bet on Talent, How to Create a Remarkable Culture That Wins the Hearts of Customers. And it is available anywhere, including my website um, that you would order books from. Well, Deanne, this has been a thrill to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Carrie. It's been all my pleasure. Well, there is a lot of gold in that interview. And if you want more, you can find the transcripts at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 294. And we are happy to provide those to you. There's also show notes with everything we talked about, including the links to Deanne's book, to stuff about Chick-fil-A, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can find those on the show notes or just Google her name, Deanne Turner, and mine. And of course, Google will guide you there as well. Hey, uh, make sure you check out redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry before it's too late. Get in on that for the new year and remodelhealth.com forward slash carry if you want to save on healthcare. And I am so excited about the next episode. We've got Rich Birch coming up. And Rich is back and he is going to talk about how to scale something at a very significant level. We're going to talk about multiplication, multi-site. This works whether you're in church or also whether you're in business. Maybe you're thinking about opening new locations. Like, how do you know you're ready to expand? How do you know you're not? There is a little bit of nail it before you scale it. If if you take your <laughs> if you have problems in your church and you do problems in two locations, it doesn't make it easier. It makes it more difficult. So you've got to, you know, solve a level of it. But frankly, I find myself on the side of the equation often saying to church leaders, like, like, I think you should do this, like step in, uh, you know, God's got a huge plan for your community and maybe this is the next step. Maybe this is, you know, where he's leading you.
That's coming up on the podcast. And so uh, stay tuned for that. And again, subscribers, you get that automatically for free. And now the Ask Carrie question from Lorne, a leader who wrote in and said, I want to appreciate my staff for what they do. Admittedly, can't pay them as much. Like I know a lot of leaders, I just can't pay what I want. How do I show appreciation in ways that make them want to stay and make sure I don't contribute to burnout for them? That's a great question. So a couple thoughts on that. First of all, pay them as much as you can. I really think a living wage is going to become a part of the new economy. And I think even as a church, uh, you should pay competitive wages. So what I would say is don't let the lack of resource become uh, a consideration in paying people less. In fact, what you probably could do, let's say you have a staff of five, a small team. Uh, What about hiring four and paying them better? Like that's an option too, right? Because often people, if they at least have a living wage, Uh, like enough to, you know, pay the rent, do groceries, you know, buy a car, fill it with gas, that kind of stuff, and maybe take a vacation once a year, they're going to be more motivated. So think about that. But let's get to the heart of the question. Um, Because let's say you even paid a a ridiculous amount of money, all right, which you may or may not do at some point in the future. There are people who leave six-figure jobs all the time, like every single day, because they can't stand the industry, they can't stand the company, or they don't like their boss. So How do you get people to stay? Pay is not the motivator you think it is. Once your basic needs are met, uh, there are a lot of other motivators. So here's something you can do. Um, Pay them with gratitude. Pay them with gratitude. Make sure you say thank you. Do that by looking them in the eye, um, thanking them. When you look at employer satisfactions and employee satisfaction studies, you'll often discover that a lot of people just feel unappreciated. One of the little hacks you can do is in every email you send, really appreciate you and thank you for what you're doing or thanks for making a difference or thanks for greeting unchurched people or hey, thanks for helping our company move forward. I mean, you might think, well, that's kind of dumb. Aren't they just doing their job? Listen, they don't have to work for you. So be grateful. Here's another thing you can do in gratitude. How about um, handwritten notes? Every once in a while, just send your team handwritten notes. Uh, other thing is gifts. You can do gifts. Uh, you can, and, and again, don't think like, oh, that's going to break my budget. I mean, a little $10 Starbucks card can go a long way. We've done those contests on this show before, and hundreds of you have won thousands of dollars in Starbucks. So I buy you a $3 coffee. You know what? The gratitude is disproportionate to the investment. So just say thank you with things like that. Another way you can appreciate your team, trust them. Trust them, empower them. People hate being micromanaged. If you've got a clear mission, vision, and strategy, you got smart people, let them run with it. So that's another thing you can do. Trust and empower them. A third thing you can do is listen to them. Really listen. A lot of bosses are bad at listening. Listen, just really listen. Make sure they're heard. Even if you don't agree, just kind of feedback to what they said and be an open person. Be an open person. Uh, that's another thing you can do. So those are some things, Lauren, I think you can do to really help your staff, even if you can't pay them much. Definitely practice gratitude in multiple forms, face-to-face. Uh, send someone an encouraging text. Write them an email. Uh, send them a nice little gift. I mean, there's so many different ways you can do that. You can trust and empower them. And then the third way is just to be open. I was talking to a CEO recently who just started at a very large company. And uh, he was saying his previous boss, the previous CEO, wasn't his boss, but his incumbent, the previous uh, CEO, had a terrible reputation in the company. And he spent the first six weeks in his role as CEO walking around, listening to people, smiling, taking their concerns seriously, and getting to know them. And you know what? Completely shocked the staff. 
they were like, they were blown away. They're like, whoa, 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 we didn't think CEOs did this. No, actually being kind is a huge motivator. He says they're now at the point where they're not even sure it's real. That's how big the culture shift is. So just create a great culture. And again, I would encourage you to pay as well as you possibly can. Think about hiring fewer people and uh, maybe paying them a little bit more. But even if you've paid someone 100,000 a year or a million a year, if you're a jerk, they're probably gonna look for other options or start something on their own. By the way, all of these principles work for volunteers. Just remove the pay, thank them, listen to them, empower them, uh, give them little gifts of appreciation from time to time. Goes a long, long way. Hope that helps. I'm looking forward to taking your questions. The way you leave them is on any social channel. Use hashtag AskCarrie. We will search for that. And uh, yeah, most episodes, we're going to bring you one of these. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Can't wait for next time as we get Rich Birch back in the house to talk about growth, expansion, and multiple locations. And until then, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.